Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. More about them later, but please go and check them out. They've got a big event coming up called Cha-Ching very soon, and you will love it. Okay, today's guest. So we've had two people that have been incarcerated before. We had uh, Michael Franzese, who was a mafia mob boss, amazing interview. We then had also Nick Yaris, who was one of the best interviews I think I can ever remember doing, who was on death row for 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. This guy has been in prison for a long time too, but his life changed dramatically. Okay, he's one of Britain's, Britain's most prolific gangsters, known as Belfast Slumdog Millionaire. After having lived through the Civil War in Belfast, a traumatic childhood in the UK care system, 23 years of organised crime and 15 years, 15 years as a Category A prisoner, he transformed his life and became globally successful as an entrepreneur and International Peace Prize nominee. His life journey, work creations, media career and global coaching success have received a high level of worldwide engagement on TV, radio and also there's a film being made soon about his story. Uh, he also sits on the board of other key companies, one being on the executive board of Unifarma, a pharmaceutical company working with revolutionary treatments in the open wound industry across Africa, the US and other territories. In May of 2020, he was nominated by the Secretary General of the Universal Peace Federation for the prestigious Sunhak International Peace Prize. How this guy turned his life around is really remarkable, and I can't wait to share his story with you. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Gillen. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us on the podcast today. You are the third member of our guest list that has been incarcerated. So I'm going to dig into that a little bit today and talk to you about that. But you've got an incredible backstory, which my audience have heard a little bit about so far, but we'd love to hear it from you. So take us from the top and give us an introduction as to who you are and what's happened to you along the way and, and why your journey is so incredibly special for us all to listen to. Certainly. First thing, Spencer, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, I was born in Belfast. My name is Stephen Gillen. I was born in Belfast. So I, uh, sorry, I was actually born here in England, but I went to Belfast as a young child, six months old. I stayed there till I was nine. So I went through the civil war there. I've seen a lot of traumatic things there, early seventies when it was really hitting it. I come back to England. I had a lot of rejection in my life. So I went through a very tumultuous care system you know, a lot of abuse, violence, stuff like that. I done a lot of running away. I went into petty crime. You know, I was back up in East London, you know, where I grew up. I progressed into serious crime quickly, firearms, uh, gangs, uh, organized crime, all of this stuff, you know, a lot of heavy stuff. I, um, I ended up, you know, I went to the Old Bailey three times. I ended up with a 17-year sentence. I was a Category A prisoner. I was released a Category A prisoner from there. I was once termed one of Britain's most dangerous prisoners at that time. But I come out from that, you know, and I reformed, I changed my life. I went on to become an entrepreneur, uh, internationally award-winning public speaker. I, um, I started to build companies. I, I got a business degree. I um, then I went into humanitarian work. I'm actually a peace ambassador. Last year I was awarded, uh, uh, nominated, which was a great uh, 
a great privilege. I was nominated for, for the Sunak International Peace Prize for my work. And I just recently wrote uh, a best-selling book, which is called The Monkey Puzzle Tree, which is a biopic on my life, which has already been optioned um, and is in pre-production to be a, a Hollywood a Hollywood film, which is coming soon, you know, the, you know with a big budget. So, it, you know, that's, that's basically me. There is more to it, Spencer. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that. Let's go back then to your childhood. I know it was tough for you, but maybe you can just paint a picture a little bit what it was like to grow up in Northern Ireland and, and to see essentially a war taking place on a, on a regular basis. There'll be, there'll be listeners right now that will go, oh, I remember that. And there'll be also people sitting here watching going, what, there was a war in Northern Ireland? What was that about? So maybe just give us a, paint a picture for me, please. The first thing you have to remember is people are people, you know, and Irish people are wonderful people. This is a real terrible thing about war. None of it is ever beautiful. It turns brother against brother, community against community, friend against friend, you know? It was certainly that in Northern Ireland. I mean, I was very young then growing up, so it was normal to me. I didn't have any experience of the world. But, you know, I, you know, there'd be the guns, the checkpoints, riots would just spark like that. There would be the bombs going off, you know, and it's document. One of the things that's well documented about my time there was where I got caught in, in a riot. I got separated from my family. I was hiding behind a hedge and I, you know, I watched a young guy who kind of been more than 18 die in front of me, you know, who was shot, you know, calling, calling for his mother, you know, so. Hold, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. How old, how old were you? I was seven then at that point, about seven. Seven years old, you watched somebody die in front of you. It was absolutely horrific, Spencer. And look, you know, the truth being known with this, I didn't actually speak of this ever, only up until about six years ago, in any detail with anyone. It was something that I kept with me. So, you, you know, I was absolutely terrified as a child, you know, witnessing this. I mean, he was, you know, he had a gun and stuff like that, balaclava, so there was all these shots being, you know, he was in the middle of it, you know, there was all these shots being traded, you know, the street was, um, had everyone had scattered, it was really, really dangerous, there was the army, the vans and all this, but he got shot in the chest and he got shot again, it flung him back, I was behind the hedge here, but, you know, we're only talking, he was two metres ahead of me, rolling the blood coming out of his mouth, uh, crying, asking for his mother. That was very, very tough. That, that, that changed me. Did you... I mean, I can't even imagine that at seven years old. Did, what, what, how did it make you feel and behave afterwards? Did it make, cause did it make you feel more vulnerable? Did it make you feel more intimidated? Did it make you feel angry? What kind of emotions did you go through? It's an interesting question because I think I felt all of that, but at different times. There was a, certainly a real defined arc of change there because uh, having to go through that, the tears were streaming down my eyes. I was absolutely beside myself, terrified. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's people who said they pulled him away in the end, but this is about 20 minutes later. It nearly kind of even stopped moving so much then by that point. So I had to go all the way through that. And it was, a, you know, it was very, very traumatic. And I, I, I was first very sullen and very quiet as I 
kind of absorbed that, uh, uh, being exposed to something like that. And then, of course, as human beings, we have a way of, you know, having to balance stuff or sweep stuff under the carpet or uh, compartmentalise stuff so we can deal with it. So there was a real hodgepodge of kind of emotions. You know, there'd be some days I would be really, really wild over that and people would not know why. You know, looking back, I see it was a very unstabling influence emotionally for me and behaviorally as well, Spencer. So you're seven years old. Clearly, you must be terrified. People that go to war suffer from something called post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you, do you think that played a part in your life? That's another wonderful question, you know, I have to say, because even with the film now and in the book, and this is a very, I get, I mean, I have transformed my life. It's a complete metamorphosis. And this is a process and it's taken real work and still takes work, all right, obviously. But I, I have a lot of that because of the life that I've lived. And this was just one part of it where it started there pretty much. But I have a lot of this, you know, where I can even be with my children. And I get mad, crazy images. And I think, what? But I've had to learn to deal with that and compartmentalize that as well but I seem to have no control over the way these images or traumas can just come in. They can come in at any, any, any moment, which is quite weird and very annoying, but I've learned to turn it on its head as, as a, as a reminder of the, the cruelty of the world and the brutality of the world and how we have to do the opposite and making things better is a real purpose for me. So this is what I do. Very interesting. Okay, now let's talk about after seven. So seven, eight years old, you, you, go, you know, you're, you're a kid. Tell me about what it was like being a kid because I know that you went into the foster care system as a kid as well. So what happened to mum and dad? What were they like? Who, who were you more like, mum or dad? And what was that relationship? And then the relationship with other family members? My mother, she was a good person. She left me back with my aunts and uncles in, in, in Belfast at that time because of the time she come back to London, to England, to try and make some kind of a life for herself. It was very hard back then, you know, in many ways. So, you know, when I was brought over, I, I wasn't actually with her. I wasn't actually with her, right? I was with foster parents for that time. And of course, this was a star of great uncertainty and instability for me, you know, again, because I'd come from a, even though I, you know, that was my formative years. I'd come to an alien place. I spoke funny. You know, I had no knowledge of anyone. I, you know, I was alone in the world. You know, my surrogate mother, who was my aunt, had died of cancer. This was traumatic for me. So there was more layered trauma there. So I was really at a sea without a paddle. So, you know, it started to go. I started to get very angry then, Spencer. This was where I seemed to generate a lot of anger and this was the start of propelling me into unhealthy choices and so how old were you before you started rebelling against that environment and getting yourself involved in you know as you called it petty crime but trouble here and there how old were you when that started I think I was around 11 when I started uh, that that kind of stuff really started it wasn't long it was very early wow 11 years old and did it start off by nicking a Mars bar from the local post office or was it was it something else no it was this kind of stuff I mean what it was really was I was in these homes and there was a lot of brutality in these homes too 
because I was one of the ones who stuck up for other kids. And looking back, there were some real vulnerable children in there. And there was a few bullies in there with the staff. Now, I didn't see the sexual stuff, but it was very violent, in, uh, physical in that way. So, of course, I was one of the ones who, you know, I used to get, you know, a lot of that. And other children would as well. We was only children. So we would end up running away all the time. So we'd run away were, to were London. You, were, you, were you a little kid or were you a big kid for your age? I was, I was never a big kid, especially in them days. I mean, I was this skinny little thing, really, right? That was me. I certainly didn't fill out until much, much later. And so when you saw that brutality, and you saw, obviously it, it would have been your mates, wouldn't it? You know, your friends that were in there that were being, being exposed to that kind of stuff as well as you. The, the only solution, rather than to fight back, was to, was to run away, yeah? Well, I used to fight back. This was the thing. We used to fight back. I mean, how, in what way we could. We was never going to win. But yeah, we used to have a go at fighting back. But this was the cycle of violence then. Being dragged along and, you know, your head smashed again, concrete and, and headlocked and, you know, all of the really, really uh, unnecessary stuff. I mean, I was locked away in boiler rooms and all sorts of crazy madness. You know, it's well, just... can you just tell me when this was? What year was it in the 80s, the 70s? When this would be so, you know, 71, I was born, nine, it's 80s, early 80s, around the early 80s. We're talking here. So you're 50 this year, yes. It was, it was the 80s. Okay, so we're, we're virtually the same age as each other. So it was the 80s. And so in the early 80s, 11 years old is 1982. And uh, 1983, 1984, we're around that type of time in your life. You're in this foster care system. You're, you're seeing brutality. On top of that, you're very angry from what you've experienced and the trauma that you've been through yourself. So it, it was never going to end well, I can only imagine. So what what... What happened? Tell me the journey after you running away and stuff. What, what happened to you? I mean, you're, you're 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. As human beings, especially at that age, you know, where there's a lot of trauma and you're really vulnerable, we, you know, we're looking... Peer pressure is a big, is a big um, thing then. So you go with those who you feel safe with and it's a surrogate family, surrogate groups you form. And, of course, you're a young child, so there's the excitement factor and... You know, so I was very drawn to that and I had the elements of that within me and it was like that flame to a moth. But I would really run with that and write the book later. But this was the, this was the, this was the elevation of it. And it was ran, I was always ran older guys, older kids who was in trouble and doing things. But at least with them, I had a belonging. I had a, I had a family and... You know, it, it, um, it ticked them boxes. And so did you ever get adopted or did you stay in the foster system all the way through? No, I, stay, I stayed there all the way through. You know, and the truth is I, I become so angry and so caught up in that that I was like a crime wave. So, you know, they, they, I went to prison for the first time when I was 14 years of age. No! Yes, when I was 14 years of age. And I was so bad, Spencer, I remember they even, because I remember this, they even put the time of my sentencing off until I was just after 14 years of age, 10 days after, so they could send me to prison, because that's how bad I was, because I was so, just... Hold on, hold on, hold on. You get you get an adult prison when you're 14? No, no, it wasn't adult prison. Then it was called detention centre. What we would what we would call borstal. 
not even Borstal. Borstals were what would become youth custody. So they was the next level. But at the bottom level, the oldest you could be sent away then was 14 and over. And I mean, it was an army camp. It was prison for young kids, but you could go there 16, 18, 19, if you got, you know, it just so happened that 14 year olds could go there. This is where they could go. I'm just trying to picture living in that era when we were, we're both from and going from one essential tragedy to one challenge to another problem. It, would, it must have felt all the way through that, that nothing could go right. You, uh, you have to make the best of it, right? You know, you have to think about what is actually happening. So you have a, a young man who has to survive, right? This is the fundamental, but he's still a young man. So there's all the excitement and devil may care and, you know, having to do all this stuff, but you're still trying to survive, you know, and navigate. It just so happens that, that the people that you're around and you're attracted to, like the like-minded people, are the ones who are really causing all the trouble. So this was- How old were you when you left Belfast? Nine. Nine, okay, so after that, you've left Belfast, you got, you, you, you're in East London then, yeah? Where in East London are you? Bethnal Green. Okay, so Bethnal Green. So again, an area that we both know well. So you're in Bethnal Green, you're turning into a teenager, you've got involved in some petty crime, you've got involved in a bit of trouble, you're hanging out with the wrong people, you go to prison when you're 14 years old. How long were you in prison for? Then I think that was that was a couple of months, that sentence. They didn't give out big sentences. But look, you know, from that, that was the start of it. And I really, you know, I was in and out. You know, I was in... Yeah, but did, when, when, you, when you came out of prison the first time, was did you not go, nah, I'm not doing that again? You say that to yourself. I said that to myself. I can remember saying that to myself. But the practicalities of keeping a straight line was never going to happen for me, looking back. That was just the start of so much more to come. And so you evolved from petty crime. What kind of serious crime did you then get involved with? Was it, was it, was it, was it bank robbery? Was it drug dealing? What, what was it? Because of the kind of the nature of the people I was around, some of my family as well, you know, and you've got to think the older ones was always there. They was really heavy criminals. You know, the racketeering, the armed robbery, the counterfeiting, all the violent crime, you know, the high level drugs, you know, into, different businesses and different scams, all kind of different scams. So they was always there, you know, the, the faces or the chaps, if you want to call them that, right? So it's kind of, within this, I've said this many, many times, within this fraternity, you're being groomed. You know, you're being groomed, some more than others, because people are people and you have different skills. But someone like me, I was someone who I, was one of them guys who was crazier than everyone else at that time, more gamer than everyone else at that time. Looking back, I used this as a way, as a defense mechanism, but a way to, to be someone, but a way to be different, but also a way to survive. You know, and I had a lot of anger issues and all that anyway, so this was very easy to me to be that person. This was the person that I was, and of course, these people don't last very long, to be honest with you. They don't, right? But at that kind of point of my trajectory, I was very attractive and very useful to be so, you know, 
especially to the older ones, because I was so game and, you know, I would have been used at that point anyway. But this is how I expedited quickly up that ladder, pretty much. And were people scared of you? <sighs> there were certainly people that would have been scared of me, of course. But, you know, I mean, I'm very, I'm very practical with these kind of things. And I was around a lot of scary guys and a lot of scary people in them days. So there was a lot of scary people around Spencer. Hmm. I can imagine. So then you've gone through in and out of prison a few times. When did the big one come? What did you do? I had, um, at that time in the East End, how it was, was there was a lot of different groups of armed robbers who used to work with each other and now organised crime, kind of. A lot of them knew each other or they knew of each other or they would have worked together. This was just these loose connections the way it was. So, you know, there was a flying squad as well at that time. So there was this cat and mouse game and it was a real life thing. It was a technological war as much as everything else. A lot of bugging even then in them days and all this stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff come out in, in the papers and books and all that after about corruption and all kinds of things that happened in this era. So this was the environment of the time, right? And, you know, I ended up in the Old Bailey three times for Ryan Robbery. I beat the first trial. The second trial, I beat the conspiracy to rob, but I got possession of a firearm. I got out again. And then, you know, there was a ready eye. There was an ambush. You know, they said I fired a couple of shots, you know, at police. You know, it was proved to be an accident. We was all arrested. Of course, it was very, very, very serious stuff. I went to the Old Bailey. I was found guilty, you know, and with all the sentences put together, I was, I was given 17 years, and this was the start of it. That's a lifetime. So how old were you when you got 17 years? 23, 24. So you at that time were sitting thinking that's till I'm 40. That is that. How did that feel? It's, um, it's hard to put it into words, but in the dock in the old Bailey, you know, and you pictured the scene, we'd gone, not guilty, we'd said they'd fitted us up and they had moved stuff in our, around, you know, in our trial, right? So that put the element of that anyway. So when they come back guilty, you know, the whole court is packed now with all these high-ranking people. It's really like that theatrical energy of it. So he handed out the sentences and um, but it's really weird. I actually, at that point, when I was looking at that judge, always knew that I was going to get a big sentence. I didn't know how or when, but I was reminded of the fact that so it was like another day at the office. In a strange... This was to change later. But, you know, I come down them old ancient stairs, you know, my co-defendants. You know, I shook their hand. I said, well, that's it then. Just like that. And this was the way it was done. But, of course, when you actually get into a sentence like that, it takes you about three, uh, uh, four years, and you know, until it really hits you. And then, you know, you really are in, in, a, in a, a world of a different place. I mean, I'd done 11 years and nine months as a Category A prisoner and was still released Category A, which is very rare. So it's very desperate. I mean, there were times in there, I, I never thought, I never thought I'd get out of there as the first in Spencer. When you're about four years into that, you start to lose all track of normality. You're living on your memories and even they are warped. 
because there's four years, you know that you're living in a time war. You're in a very, very violent environment. It's affecting you greatly as a human being, all of it, right? So you are, um, of course, you're surviving. I mean, I was involved in a lot of violence in there again because there was gangs and it was very violent. You know, I see people get killed in front of me. There was, you know, I never thought I would actually get out of there. That's the truth. It was so bad. I never thought I would get out of there. I had no understanding of what that would look like. Which prison were you in? Oh, I was in so many. Which prison wasn't I in? You know, I was someone who was moved around a lot. I had probably about 30, 30 moves over that over that time. Some prisons you'd go two, three times, dispersal prisons, high security prisons, but you'd go to all different places. Why? Why do they move you? Because I was, I, what happened with me again was I was very involved in, in the gang culture in there. It just went that way. It kind of come from the street and translated in there and we were stuck with it again, right? And I was very disruptive, you know? I mean, I was like, I had all emotion sucked from me at that point. I'd lost everything. I was in a, a very dark place, right? And um, that's a very desperate place to be a very dark and desperate place to be, but you still have to survive. There was times even there, I didn't even want to survive no more. This is how deep and dark this hole is, right? And um, so I was, my rebellion was all I had left in some points. And when I look back, even though it was very, very destructive, I know that my anger even kept me going for many a year, as strange as it might be, may sound i had to pivot from that and save myself from utter destruction later on but for many years that kept my fire burning because it was very torturous did you ever feel like taking your own life there were a few times yeah it's in the book there were a few times and did you see people take their own lives unfortunately yes do you think the prison system works no i don't that's for many reasons. You can, I mean, most people that were listening to this that, that have never been involved in crime and whatnot would say, right, you committed a crime, you got your punishment, you got, you got what you deserved. And so they'll, they'll, they'll probably lack some sympathy or empathy around uh, that particular part of it. But does, does the punishment, do you think, and I know you're, you're going to have a point of view here, but does the punishment... Does it really equal the crime? This is one of the problems with prison, is that, look, are there people that should be kept in prison? Absolutely. Are there people who are in prison who shouldn't be there or are misdiagnosed? Absolutely. Are there a great number of people that are in there where they don't need to be in there? This is adds to their dysfunctionality and there are other ways? Absolutely. So there you have an age-old problem of prison crime versus punishment. Now, look, we have to be accountable for our actions. Absolutely. We need to be punished and people who, who have these tendencies, they need to be managed. You know that, Spencer. Other people must be protected, right? But we're a civilized society who's been here for many thousands of years and you would have liked to hope that we would have learned something. When it comes to the prison service, I'm not seeing a lot of that. There's so much red tape and it's such a quagmire. It is impossible 
to navigate. Now, I do know there are a lot of people and there's certainly some groups I even work with. I mean, when I, years later, when I had made my transformation, I went back to prison, high security prison. You know, I gave workshops with master's degree forensic psychologists to prisoners, both men and women's prisons. So we've done a lot of work. I still work now with some prison officers who are trying to do unbelievable work in creating the transition from prisoners into work and creating a life for themselves that's, that's giving to society. So I still do, not as much now because I'm so busy, but I've done much of that work along the way. And I still try and, and help because I, you know, my journey is relevant and it's valuable and I do try and help there. Do me a favor and just, just for two minutes, just give us an example, just for the listeners here, an example of a day in the life in a high security prison. Give me 24 hours. What goes on in your life for 24 hours? The first thing you'll hear is the noises. It's terrible. It's like a big rush of noise, keys, gates, jangling. Your feelings drop as like, oh, fuck, oh, shit. As if you just, that reality, that des desperation of all the negative feelings hit you straight away. And then you can't escape that all day. Because don't forget, you've escaped when you sleep. So when you come back, straight away, you're brought straight into where you actually are and what's actually going on, right? And then, you know, depending where you are, I've done a lot of solitary and different stuff, but they'll open the doors. You know, you'll kind of go down, get some kind of breakfast. Then you'll go to work. You know, this is a generalized kind of thing. I was in special units and all different kinds of places. These are prisons within prisons. So it's a different kind of regime in there. But generally I'm talking about and then you would, you know, you'd come back, you'd have dinner, they'd bang you back up for an hour and a half or something. Then you'd go down your afternoon, you'd do education or maybe something else if you was working and you didn't work on the wing. And that's a normal day. And then, you know, in the evening you might get, they call it association, you'd get a couple of hours maybe to do your washing. In some prisons, long-term prisons, they let you cook a little bit of food. That's very strict now watch a bit of telly, maybe talk to people, have a game of pool. That's basically it. And when you work, what kind of work do you do? Well, high security, in the high security estate, it's very curtailed. So you've got education's a big one. There's some kind of jobs on the wing you would do like a laundry man or hot plate or kitchen's another one. Or you might be an orderly for certain places in the prison. Or there'd be workshops where you may do certain, make certain things. And that's pretty much it. And so do you, do you look at the clock at all? Or do you switch off from days of the week and hours in the day and stuff? You're aware of the time, but time takes a different, different meaning of time in there. I mean, if you think, here's an example. When I, when I had about two years left, I started to say, right, I'm at the end now. Now I'm on, the, I'm on the final furlong. And this is with two years left to serve. Two years is a long time, right? But this is how time is managed in your head, where years just come and go. And all I would do was tick the years off, like I suppose people would tick the months off. Wow. And what did you miss the most? 
you miss many things, but you miss love and kindness and that and that um that intimacy with with on that level, you know, with with a girlfriend or your family or your this is completely gone. You you know, you haven't got that connection. You right, it's very barren in there and sucked of all that emotion. So you don't have that. So this is, you know, this is, you know, you miss this. And of course, all the usual stuff. Regular stuff that a lot of people take. Everything, around. absolutely everything. You have no future, you know, you don't have any luxuries. You're you're just marking time. You don't have, it's a not having a future or not having any hope really when you're doing a big sentence like that or, mm. you know, even knowing what a future would look like or if you would survive that future, it's quite a thing to really have as a reality in your mind on a sentence like that. So you find out that you're leaving, you find out you're coming out and you look forward to the day, that day comes What's the process there and how did it feel? Well, again, it was different from me. You know, I won't go into the story, but, you know, you can't believe that you're there. It's the first thing, you know, you just can't believe that you've made it. You can't believe that you're there, but there is anxiety because you know, there's a lot of anxiousness because you know that God, 12 years, you know, have completely disappeared. You're certainly different. Everyone you know is certainly different. The world is different. So there's the anxiety of all of this. So again, you're going into the unknown. And it's, it's, a, it's a very surreal experience, especially for a, for a high security prisoner, where it's like walking out of one door and one universe into a completely separate one that, that is the opposite. And then you have a feeling that 12 years have just disappeared like that. And when you came out, what did you notice? What were the things that you noticed at first that were really different? You were like, what the heck is that? Or what's going on here? What, what, what really resonated with you? <clears throat> well, it was different for me, you know, I have to say, because I had a unique experience again coming out on the day I actually come out from that sentence. Because I should have been released in the morning, but I was still a cat A. You know, you know, in the home office, they, they, you know, they made up this big kind of, it was a, smoke and mirrors to keep me in basically now right and but i got released in the evening when the courts was coming in and the reason they've done that is because it was a cat a still and all of this whatever they thought then they had a police surveillance squad already outside waiting for me which was a terrible way to be you know and i mean i found that out after because you know i had word from someone in there where an officer said to my friend in there, they said, here, you know, do you know that Stevie Killen? He said, yeah. Uh, they had all police waiting for him out there the other day when he went out. So it was confirmed for me. I didn't actually see them, but looking back, it, you know, I had them feelings again of being under observation that what I did, which was very sad, Spencer, because all of that I'd been through by my own choice or not, you know, I mean, it's immaterial at that point because I'm looking to start a new life, right? So I, this was the start of it. Not a, not a good start. How easy would it have been to fall back into the type of life you had before? Look, you know, the truth is, you know, and I always say how it is, it was very easy for me because I actually went back after that sentence and that was the last time 
So because of everything, I actually went out. I was out for two years. I, you know, I was institutionalized. I just could not, and I was married. I was very lucky because I'd always had people behind me, you know, to support me who believed in me. So I was very lucky there. But, you know, I got arrested again with another firearm with my brother two years later and was sent back for another five years. So, I, so there you go. I mean, this is the truth of the story, so I'm not going to dress it up. I'm just going to no. say how it was, right? And that was the last time. That was the last time because there was a lot of bad stuff. You know, that was, you know, I was involved again and that was for protection. And then anyway, I went back to prison and... Um, I'd done two and a half years. I got five years for that. I'd done two and a half years. That was the last time, Spencer. After that, that was the last time. So in the time between coming out and going back in, you'd fallen in love and got married, yeah? I got married in prison, actually. So I'd already had my wife. So I'd come home, my wife was there. How, how does that work out? Did you know her before you went to prison? I did, yes. So she stood by you all those years? No, it wasn't Daphne. I'm not, I'm not married no more. Oh, okay, sorry. So your previous... This life. was back in the day then. So what year did you finally come out of jail for good? It would have been about 2007 or something like that. About 2007, I think, was the last time. This fascinates me. Okay, and thank you so much for sharing this at the moment. And I've got still got a bit to go. So really, really appreciate you sharing this. Let's... Let's go to that point where you said, no more, never again, I'm done. I when when was that moment? many moments like that towards the end, but to actually integrate it into, into something that was really tangible at the right time in the right way outside when you really had to, you really had to do it. There, there was a few epiphanies, so it's a process, but there was a line in the sand and, you know, it come after that. I had really, you know, I had navigated unbelievable things i mean i lost my mind at one point right you know really a lot with all of it the trauma and all that i thought people was coming to kill me and all this so so but they made me better with that so you know it was very this was another part of the journey that was unbelievable it's just an unbelievable thing to have to go through but these were all changes you know in in me as a person this is why I say this, and and it added to really getting to that final that final line where that was it, right? You know, and it was around that time, you know, and I wasn't prepared to hurt the people, hurt anyone, you know. Again, especially the people who was close to me in my life, couldn't do that, wasn't going to do that, you know. I wasn't prepared to feel how miserable, and you know emotionally, spiritually, mentally bankrupt. I felt at everything, you know, and having lived a life like that, couldn't do that anymore. You know, and I also wasn't prepared for where a lot of people would kind of put you down in slight little ways, thinking they was better than you. And really I knew that they wasn't, and there was so much more. So there was a real driver there for me, Spencer, at this point. And when the lights finally come on, then I, you know, there was no way back for me. And I've kept going forward um, since that day, every day since that day. Both of us have had Michael Francisi on our podcast and both of us know his story. And we know that he turned to religion and to God. And it was a way of him uh, creating something around his faith and uh, a new start for himself. 
what what did you have? Was there anything in there when you say when the light came on? Did you turn to religion? Did you turn to spiritualism? Was there something? Was there deep therapy? What 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 created this with you? First thing is I've always been spiritual. You know, I was brought up a Roman Catholic. I studied all the faiths. I was just like Michael in that way. I studied absolutely everything. I'm very esoteric and very well read. When I get into something, I want to know it top to bottom. So I studied everything. I had a lot, lot of time to do that, right? And then, but there were some real profound times, certainly during my life and certainly during them dark days where I'll give you one where even I'd be in the darkest dungeon somewhere like Durham, you know, really with a bar of soap. And that was pretty much it, you know, and all them years stretched out in front of me and really at the darkest points of my life, at my wit's end. And then a little voice would come in my head and it would say, you have to do this. And I would say, I would speak to her, I'd say, why would I have to do this? This living hell. Of course, it wouldn't elaborate. It'd just be really to say, you have to do this. Now, of course, you think, you know, what is this? Am I hearing things right at that point? But looking back years later at what I'm doing now and the journey, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. There are so many joining the dots of this thing that there is a lot more going on here than just me or my life or what has to be done here. So certainly another influence of, of a protective guiding influence, right? That is very, very present, right? Call it what you want. You know, I mean, I'm very spiritual. You know, you can call it the source, you can call it God. For me, I say all religions are good in that sense, but they're different pathways towards the same source. This is what I believe. Okay. There are, there, are, there are people out there that haven't even got enough <clears throat> in them, in drive or ambition to get out of bed to go and do something, let alone the massive step that you took from leaving one life and starting a new life. That, that transition, I think, is really important for people to understand because... You know, I come from a place which you do for sure is that you can do anything you set your mind to, whether whether that be good or evil. It doesn't matter. You can do anything you set your mind to. And I think I live by that kind of mantra uh, of it's you are fully responsible for the outcomes in your life. But so many people really do struggle with just going one small step further where you've done a whole 180 and gone in a completely different direction. It's really important that people understand the psychology around how you did that. So can you, can you share There that? are many parts to it, but look, what I had to do me, I can only speak for me, because I had to deal with it, but I have the results of solving these problems, right? Is I had to, you know, there was one, you know, I had addiction problems for many years, you know, and when I went to, even that, you know, a lot of people don't come back from that, right? Yeah. When I went, you know, Unfortunately, bless them, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's an illness. But when I went there to, you know, to the rehab years ago, there was a guy, he's still a friend of mine now, unbelievably qualified PhD level and above. It's just, it's just but he said to me, Stephen, there's only one thing you have to change. And I said, what's that? He said to me, everything. Now, of course he was right at that point, <laughs> everything. So there's a good indication of what I had an intellectual understanding, of course, of what he meant, but yeah. I had no understanding here when the penny drops of what he actually meant. Now, of course, I do. I'm very advanced at where I am now in my development from that, from these times and that person I was, right? 
But what I had to do is I had to do something of what I call, Spencer, internal engineering, where I had to re-engineer me. People, places, things, thoughts, codes, values. First, I had to, had to understand who I was. I didn't even really understand really who I was, was the first thing. So I had to uncode that, which I think is a prerequisite for all human beings, is that we understand us and we conquer us in a, in a form that is the right form for progressive growth forward, which is what it's about for us. We get lost along the way, many of us. Bless us, right? But there you go. That's a simplistic version. So when I had to really create very stringent boundaries, which, which keeps a lot of stuff in, really, and managed, but it keeps all the bad stuff out too, right? It's very strict. And for me, look, you know, it's like anything, even in business and all this stuff that we do. One of the main elements to anything is consistency. So I had to forge that over many, 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 many years of re-engineering what I was doing before, while I'm learning, while I'm building, while I'm doing all the stuff that I need to do to develop. It's like, it's like, it's almost like unlearning, isn't it? to relearn. This is important. I want to give you another example that's really important. Some people will get that, but let me give you another really clever, clever thing about how it's, look, and I've said this before, it's like, look, it's like when the general comes on the beach with all his soldiers, the first rule he says is burn the boats. They say, what? Burn the boats? Because he burned the boats because that takes away all the negative elements. Do I, don't I, is there any way back or anything like that? What I'm saying is, when we have a problem that's not serving us, we can uh, super superimpose something else that is more of a driver to leverage ourselves towards what we should be doing. This is how I've always done it. I know you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. It's using that leverage and positioning yourself into a position where you have to do the right things. And there's no other way around it. I use all of these tricks, and especially in the early days, because I had to. I had to manage myself. I had to protect myself and other people. I had to get things right. I had no room for error. So the main person you're playing chess with is yourself. Fantastic way of describing it. Okay, so you deal with that. How do you decide what you want to do for your future? Did it come to you like a flash or did you go and try some different things and, and then kind of found your groove? That's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it, because this is what it's really all about. And for me, I was, look, you know, I have wonderful children. I've done a lot of voluntary work. You know, I would go, I would wash the dishes, I would help make the food, I would sweep the floors in homeless shelters. I loved this. This was so, so such a gift for me at reviving my humanity and me as the person that I really was. Stuff like this was absolutely fundamental for me. Right, you know, it, 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 it gave me so much of what I needed at that point. But then I went on, of course, I went to university. I learned, you know, I started public speaking. I met more people. I, you know, I started as a laborer. I went on to be a supervisor and then running a team of 25 men in my own contract to having my own business within 18 months, you know. And then six months later, I had a quarter of a million pounds worth of contracts and this is our, this is the middle bit if you want the middle bit in business. Really simple. But the other parts of that, the real stuff, right, to how I actually done that, to be the person that could do that 
and stuff like that was was the journey you know was the journey and was you know and was the learning was the learning you know and doing stuff like that doing stuff like that to to um it's about development you know it's really about development but i'll tell you this is look when i started going in the right direction with consistency and doing the right things that i should have been doing tenaciously more is revealed just like it even is today and then i suddenly started getting i call it downloads i suddenly i suddenly started getting the downloads that right what i want to be and what i want to do is i want to improve the lives of hundreds of millions of people worldwide now at that point i didn't even know how i, I would do that or what that would look like or what that's about because i knew this is the start of the download but then I go further and I learned that, look, you know, more is revealed. It says, look, you know, to do this, I need to conquer business, my own part of business. I need to learn business. I need to conquer my own part of the media. I need to, I need to learn that. You know, I need to be a public speaker, for instance. I need to get them skills. I need to be a person who does that. So, you see, more is revealed. And then I went on. You know, I went on. I'd done more work and more was revealed. You know, and then I was, I've always been blessed and I always say this, and this is definitely the other half of what I am or will always be, is the wonderful people in my life. This is a life's work to find these people. It certainly has been for me, but when you find them, they are everything, you know, they are everything. You're, you're, you say your brother, he's still alive? Yes, yes, he's still alive, my brother. Yeah, and so, so he was on. Uh, what is interesting for me is that you've you've been on this journey, but there must have been some some things pulling you back that were from your past that were potentially negative, potentially dangerous influences on you in a, in a negative kind of way, and you, you got to deal with that as well. So, how did you do, how did you have those conversations with people, or did you just say to yourself, oh, "I can't be around those types of people for what I might get into myself if I do spend time there." Look, you're absolutely right. When you're so integrated into such a, a life like that for so long, this is all you are and all that you know and what you've built up, then it's hard to get to get yourself out of that. So there is that transition, which I think is fair to say is very hard because it catches so many people in that period. They can't deal with that. You know, they can't deal with that and they're susceptible, susceptible to so much at that point, right? But look, you know, there comes a point you have to choose. You have to grow up and you have to, you have to choose, you know, is this what I want for my life? And, you know, in many ways, I've got to be honest, Spencer, it's, it's, it's seeing through the lies. It's seeing through the lies because that life is so much bullshit. I was even talking to someone the other day who's transformed their life. They're doing wonderful things. And he said to me, Stephen, when you look at that, all that hype and that propaganda that what it was back in the day, you see just how there's nothing to it at all. I said, absolutely. It's all rubbish. It's a little small microcosm that is very destructive and, you know, very, but it's the truth. It's meaningless. There's nothing behind it, but it's very destructive, very negative, very negative. What prompted you to write the book? I think I had to Spencer, really. I think for me, Yes, I wanted to write the book. I just had to write it. But it, it was very cathartic for me as well. And it was part of my journey, it's fair to say. And it's really weird because the way I'd 
built my internal engineering, as I said to you, so strong, so tight, so rigid, so pragmatic, so, you know, black and white, if you want. And I dealt with so many problems. Of course, when I actually went back into the muddied waters again, I realized that once you muddy them waters again, there's actually still a lot of stuff in there, which I had to, you know, I had to go over again. And there were parts of it that weren't easy. So it was very, very cathartic for me. And I'm very happy that I've done it. I'm actually writing my next book now. Did you employ a ghostwriter or did you do it yourself? No, I've done it myself. And I, I, look, you know, one of the things with me is, is you know, if you had said to me, what innate abilities did you have, Steve, that was any good? I would have said speaking and writing. The rest I've learned. So I was always a good writer. So that was easy for me. You know, and I'm very, I'm very happy that I produce the goods it's a wonderful do you think do you think by a movie being made about your story is gonna glamorize what you did and and focus on that side of things rather than the man you became absolutely not you know because i am i am a producer on it because i'm in this industry media you know tv and all this stuff what we do we build brands now is what we basically do national and global brands so we're very much the pr and doing formats for tv and all that at the other end of that process now right so i'm working with a lot of people who i knew anyway i didn't sell the rights to the book i still have it so i went that route so i'm a producer on it so I have a lot of creative control. You know, uh, Kieran Suchet, you know, I'm talking to Mizzy Kieran again. He wrote the screenplay. Of course, he's the son of John and David Suchet, who, who was who was Poirot. So um, he wrote the script. You know, I have wonderful, um, really experienced executive producers and wonderful names and wonderful guidance. But it is not that story. It is like the book. It's a very human story. Yes, it's got all that in it, but that is not what this is about. This is about someone really who played that role and done all that stuff, but it shows how he was positioned into that. But really it's about the inspirational, transformational, redemptional stuff at the end and how I basically was never that, but I managed to find my way back to myself. That's magical. Who do you want to play your part? There's been a lot of names mentioned, and I have to be very, very careful here. There's been really big names mentioned, banded about in the in the in the media. We're at a very, very advanced stage now of everything. All I can say is there are some very, very big names attached to this script, and there will be more revealed very, very soon in the coming months. All you can say is it's not you, Spencer. <laughs> you know, I need to be professional there with that. And um, that's the right thing. That's the right thing. But there has been a lot of names out there. I'm sure people, if they research, they would see some of the names. Uh, very current, very, very well-known names. It's a book, a backstory, a movie, a transformation of a, a man that, went through some really tough experiences as a kid that led him down a difficult path to the person you are today with the success you created and the difference that you're making to people around the world um, is nothing short of remarkable. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come and share your story. Thank you, really. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Gillam. What a fantastic guest to have on the show. Stephen, thank you so much. <laughs> Well, I told you, 
Isn't it mad how people can turn their life around? So many people sometimes think, oh, I can't change my job or I can't move to another country. But someone who was in prison for all those years can change his whole life from a life of crime to a life of service. I'm sure you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And what a fantastic guy. Do me a favor, go follow him, send him a message, tell him you listened to this and tell him that you really enjoyed it. And go see what other work he's got together himself as well because I think you'll value it. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this episode and you're listening on iTunes, then please, please, please give me a five-star rating. On other podcast apps, please give me a follow. If you can leave comments, that's great too. The more people that see this podcast, the more people will enjoy it. And I rely on you to do that. So please give it your best. Get involved, get supporting, and make sure that other people can enjoy this content just as much as you have.